0: Welcome to Presence by Naki O. I am your host, Naki Osute. I've been working in and around Bay Street for just under 20 years now. I know, can't believe it either. I started in the not-for-profit sector, moved into the broader public sector, and now I'm in the private sector as an executive in one of Canada's largest banks. Irrespective of the sector, I've always worked to redefine leadership, to develop leaders, and to broker opportunity. It's been my personal mission to help myself and others take up more space while making space. And that's how I think about presence. And that's what this show is about. Of course, I mean this as it relates to the experiences of people for whom taking space has been traditionally inhibited. So, as a heterosexual, cisgendered, femme presenting woman, I know that there are a number of privileges that I experience on Bay Street. And so I do want to work hard to bring forward the stories of of individuals who are on Bay Street that are not benefiting from some of the privileges that have been afforded to me. So season one is dedicated to the experience of Black people who are trying to take space and make space on Bay Street. And to be honest with you, to like break the news to you, I'm actually using Bay Street as a proxy for institutions in general. Because staying black on Bay Street sounds a heck of a lot better than staying black in institutions or staying black in establishment organizations. I think you get where I'm coming from. So as my people would say, hey Naki, why all this? A whole podcast on this? Well, let's take a look at this closely. Think about where you were educated, how you were educated, where your kids are currently educated, where you work, where someone in your family works, where you go for social, community services, government services. And yes, a lot is changing in the world. Some things are becoming more democratized, but still, institutions, whether they be large or small, still have a significant influence over our lives. So what happens when Black people aren't in these spaces? What happens when Black people are in these spaces but can't or won't or don't know how to take up space? When it comes to Black presence on Bay Street, the prevailing narratives are about how few Black people are present or how many Black people are leaving. And yes, these are critical conversations. But there are also important conversations to be had concerning the experiences of people who have stayed. So that's where Presence by Naki O comes in. This is a space to make sense of it all and to learn what I call resistance building tactics to help you survive and hopefully thrive on Bay Street without losing yourself. Each episode is broken into three segments. The first is one day it'll all make sense and it will address a question or a theme through the experiences of one or more people. Having worked in the private, public, and not-for-profit sectors, I strongly believe that we can learn from one another, irrespective of what sector we are currently in. So you will be hearing from a variety of people. The second segment, nonsense, will give you language to describe the sheer foolishness that you see around you so that you can name it and change it when you see it and lastly the third section you better recognize and this is about recognizing sheer brilliance in our midst this episode what i call the prologue will set the stage for the series by answering some fundamental questions about staying black on bay street i've invited three friends Ray Williams, Kike Ojo-Thompson, and Helen Tewold, and they will offer thoughts on this conversation. I first met Ray Williams when I was working for a not-for-profit organization who happened to be housed at King & Bay. Uncle Ray, as he's affectionately known, brought me into the Black Bay Street circle, though I worked for a not-for-profit at that time. And around the time we met, He was in the midst of setting up a whole new mortgage business for the bank, a move that would help them reinvent themselves in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. If you ask him, Ray will direct a lot of the credit to the team, but it's clear he's been part of the bank's transformation. Having seen a lot of change and frankly leading a lot of it, Ray was prepared to move aside and help the bank think through succession planning. But the bank was not ready for him to go.
1: Um, Having seen some of those changes, senior management, when I suggested to them, look, you know, it's time to look at succession planning, uh, they essentially stated, we don't want you to go anywhere, we want you to stick around for a while longer, we've got a lot of young people in management positions, so, you know, your relationships, your knowledge, um, et cetera, will be very helpful.
0: Today... Ray is the National Director and Vice Chairman for Financial Markets at National Bank Financial. But back in 1998, the year I took my first steps on Bay Street, Ray was working with a federal working group called Embracing Change in a volunteer capacity. In this group, they were examining diversity and inclusion in the corporate sector.
1: Um, 20 years later, my observation has been in large part that a lot of diversity work, and I would use the inverted quotes over that, has taken place. But a lot of it has been, to my mind, more so checking the boxes. If you want to really undertake diversity and more importantly inclusion, then you have to have that function be something that sits uh, around the table that represents all the major decision-making processes. Right, um, That has to be something that is also taken on by every single senior executive around that table, that they are able to trickle down into their particular department. But we're not seeing that. What we are seeing is a couple of things. Diversity and inclusion as it speaks to gender, to the point where gender and diversity are now fungible and i challenge people all the time but those two things are not tangible. so that's why i say you know i look at it and it's i find it deeply disappointing because uh there is clear fatigue around the notion of the eye but the pie has been lacking but the needle has moved um it's moved only my needle, but it has moved As someone who came here 30 years ago, you know, and have worked in Bay Street uh, during that period of time, I would say that, yeah, uh, we've moved, but nowhere near as far as I would like to have seen it. But I can bring up specific examples of people, in fact, you know quite well, uh, who have taken leadership roles in Bay Street uh, in a way that I might never have anticipated 30 years ago. So I want to retain some degree of um, positivity about where we're going. Uh, The negativity would be about how slowly we're going.
0: So if if you speak to a number of corporate leaders today, they will say that they are, in fact, doing the very things that Ray is spelling out in his recommendation. And yet the progress towards equity, towards true inclusion seems, So slow. Once a high school teacher, Kika Ojo Thompson had three separate careers before going out on her own to run her own diversity, inclusion, and equity consulting firm, the Kojo Institute. In roles in the public sector primarily, she led processes and projects like One Vision, One Voice that will essentially change the trajectory for communities, particularly equity-seeking groups and specifically Black people. She grew her business alongside her day jobs. And now, as an entrepreneur, it's not just the glacial pace of change that's a concern to her. We're
2: seeing a, a, a rush. Uh, of, and I think so much so that it's being written about a lot in social, not just in social media, but in different publications about black women being, black women in particular, being the number one growing, fastest growing entrepreneurial group. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we can clap that and celebrate and, and, you know, congratulate all of that, we need to understand why that phenomenon is happening. And it is not solely about people exercising their choice it is also about people feeling like they're at their wit's end and need to preserve themselves and survive and you know and and that the the daily um onslaught of of racism in their work environment is just too soul-destroying to stay i think that's also true Mm -hmm. so as much as there's, you know, great entrepreneurial drive and capacity and amazing ideas and, you know, all of that great stuff. There's also people really running for the hills.
0: Like I said earlier, the narratives of Black people leaving Bay Street are not new. In fact, they've taken up a lot of the space around Black presence on Bay Street. You probably saw the acclaimed Walrus article by Hadilla Rodrigue about being Black on Bay Street. Her experience leaving her law firm speaks to the very kind of soul-destroying racism that Kika mentioned. So when I sat down with Kika in early May of 2020, she talked about some of the things that that are at the root of this underrepresentation and the lack of progress that we've seen. Number one, there's a strange reluctance to recognize that multiculturalism and racism can coexist, even if it's a federal policy on multiculturalism. And somehow in Canada we've created this idea that those two they can't exist in the same space but yet we know that couldn't be further from the truth. Number two there's a rewriting of history in Canada that results in Canadians not recognizing that we too have a 200-year history of slavery right here on this land and as such we still experience the legacies of, of slavery in all spheres of society. And number three we remain a bastion of colonialism connected to the queen who is our head of state there's something to be said about how these things affect us consciously or unconsciously the way the world sees and understands blackness and whiteness
2: is is when i talk about sort of the vestiges of the legacies of colonialism and slavery the piece that i haven't named yet is is how that how those legacies define who non-white people are so so that the colonial, the colonially, colonially set ideas. So the idea of the savage, the idea of the of the uncivilized, the barbaric, the behind, the third world. All of these concepts. That those are like backpacks. You know, people. We talk about the backpack of white privilege. We don't actually talk about the other backpacks. Then, <laughs> right? Um, which is around these these uh, these ideas. What I call powerful unexamined ideas. And I got that from a mentor of mine um, and Bishop, but the powerful unexamined ideas that are sitting on our back.
0: You may have come across the book, Superior by Angela Saini. She digs into the history of race science and unpacks how and why racial categories were created. She offers that at first it was just what was happening at the time. Scientists were creating taxonomies for plants, animals, and humans. Racial categories were based on skin colors. Certain traits were then attached to different categories of people. Given that the scientists doing the work were Western European, naturally, they attached positive traits like large brain size and intelligence to people who looked like them and named those people Caucasoid, and negative traits to other groups, creating a sort of racial hierarchy with Negroid or Black at the bottom. This kind of thinking came in handy when it came to things like slavery because it created justifications for the dehumanizing treatment of Black people. But by 1950, Post-World War II scientists became weary of notions of race and hierarchy and wanted to do away with the notion completely, but it was too late. The social consequences of the established hierarchy, in particular the benefits of that hierarchy to white people, were too great. So while publicly platitudes like, we're all the same race, the human race, Things like this became commonplace. There continued to be studies designed to prove racial difference in order to justify racist outcomes. So that history also helps us understand the ends of the spectrum, whiteness and blackness. But what about everything in between? Given that there is a hierarchy with whiteness at the top and blackness at the bottom, other races in the interest of not being at the bottom are defined in relation to not being black. So blackness presents the boundary to whiteness. So if you're not black, the experience and benefit of whiteness is still available to you, provided your racial category doesn't present a threat or a danger to whiteness. And so when people start to question, why are we only talking about anti-black racism, which I know for for a lot of us in in different work environments, that's now the big question in this uh, racial awakening moment. What about all the other types of racism? Kika has a very important response to this. You know, the thing
2: about anti-Black racism is that everyone's participating in it, right? And, and I was going to say, except Black folks. And I want to say, except Black folks. But I also want to say that there are Black folks who ascribe to anti-Black ideas, right? Which means there needs to be a mechanism and a process for talking to others, everybody, so white, Indigenous, Asian, South Asian, Latinx, everybody, okay, uh, about how, um, how they perform anti-Black racism and, how, and what anti-Black racist ideas they hold.
0: Wow. That, I, we, need to, we need to unpack that a little bit more because I'm sure there are going to be some listeners who would think themselves very progressive, acting as allies, standing up for, for Black liberation and equality, and then we'll be shocked to hear you say that everyone is participating in anti-black racism. Can you talk a little bit about how that shows up, and especially in the ways yeah. that people may not suspect that they are participating in it?
2: Yeah, that's super. Thank you for that opportunity, actually, to dig drill down in that because um, it's a layered comment. So when we talk about the anti's, what I call the anti's, so anti-black racism, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, the anti portion is suggest action-oriented strategizing to undo, right? It, 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 so if you think about, if you break that down, so you, it, it requires action, but it's strategic action for the purpose of undoing the anti-blackness. So there's that, and, I, and some people would say, well, that's a lot, you know, so, you know, I'm not really that type of person, or whatever some people might be thinking, and fair. But understand that in our non-action, in our silence, in our, like, all of those things are, coll- it's like collusion. <laughs> like, it, because, and what I mean by that is, since people hear collusion, they hear a lot of intention, and intention with malice. So no, it's not intention with malice. But if you understand that anti-blackness is operating all the time because of slavery and colonialism, then Deciding to, to, to not act is essentially allowing or enabling the thing to continue. So for that reason, you don't get to say you're an ally. You might get to say that you're someone who wishes these things would go away.
0: <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> and I, as we all do, right? Um, but, and, and, and I think, you know, to be honest and frank, I, I think there's a lot of black people who have not chosen action-oriented strategizing to undo they just happen to be black. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and so they're actually not actually fully engaged in seeking their own liberation, and they have their reasons.
0: Anti, anti-blackness, anti anti-black racism, white supremacy, whiteness. People get very afraid when they hear that, mm-hmm. because, again, those words perhaps are cloaked in particular images for them, and mm-hmm. not not in the image of... You know, you you reference micro micro and macro aggressions earlier, and for many people, they don't see how those two things are linked. In their mind, when they hear white supremacists, they think of images of the KKK. I was just gonna say, and even scarier, that it it might have nothing to do with the
2: person, person, the team, nothing to do with the people, mm. but to do with the normal. What 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 I was taught, you know, around sort of another way of thinking of systems is the normal way things work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And when you wrap your head around how the normal way things work is 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 white supremacist is it it, it, it is you know um well, it's a couple things its it, it's often at first you know gut wrenching and scary and then I actually think it it can be liberating because you know. Oh, I just got emotional for some reason. I I think about how most of us grow up. Actually, we we grow up on meritocracy and neoliberalism. Let me actually be really clear. We grow up on meritocracy. So we grow up totally invested in the idea that we will get out of this world what we work for. Mm. And if most people are honest with themselves, even, even the most learned about systems of oppression, it's still... An operating feature in how we think, and so, um, and, and and so, if there's something very um, incongruent and disjointed about working as hard as most of us work. Everybody I know actually works hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm going back to, to thinking about Black people now at this moment, but racialized people, Black people, we're all working so hard, and when you look around, you don't see the reflection of that hard work. So you don't see the evidence of that hard work. You don't see, you know, um, that, because that due to that hard work, there is balance. You don't, you know, you walk through, you know, um, sort of high-end high or high-level spaces, whether it be in corporate or just, you know, high-end communities, et cetera, and you don't see yourself. <laughs> and, and, and so either we're really not working hard and you're just in a bubble by yourself, or something else is going on. And and well, some of us have come to, to be clear that something else is going on, but we haven't been clear to identify that it is white supremacy. So white supremacy is not, let me be clear for, for listeners, white supremacy is not people. The concept is system. The concept is the normal way things work, that normalize and neutralize whiteness, while othering and, you know, uh, demonizing, frankly, others. But we don't go as far as naming and articulating what it is. And I think there's great liberation there. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about action oriented strategizing to undo, what how are you gonna know what to do if you don't know what game board you're operating on?
0: I wanna introduce you now to Helen Towald. Helen grew up in Hamilton, where she was active in issues related to equity. You know, in university, this is like her early activism, she created a newsletter called Afro Vibes to fill the gap of not having an African studies program. She coordinated the writers, she paid for it herself, and this led to early community development work. When she was in grad school in Toronto, she helped found the Eritrean Youth Collective. Her career has really been in the not-for-profit sector, Beginning with the Youth Challenge Fund, um, which you know, which many of us will remember, was a response to the conditions that resulted in the summer of the gun. Helen has always wanted to bridge her policy lens with academic research expertise and community development work. She is now the director of policy and programs at the Law Foundation.
3: And so, to me, saying stay, black means a whole bunch of things. I mean, we are such a diverse group, and I mean, it's not because being black is not a homogenous experience. Um, you know, but the impact of racism is that it makes us think it is. I think it collectivizes us in stereotypes. And I think saying black means staying true to yourself and to your experiences, holding your relationship to yourself and mm. your true experiences with your relationship to the collective. That's what saying black means and it's on an individual
0: level. So mm-hmm, sorry, mm-hmm. got a little. <laughs>
3: But on on a on a there's other levels to there's levels to this, Naki. There's levels. Share, share the
0: levels, um, please. Share the levels.
3: Sure, there are levels to this. I don't know which rapper said that. My rap references are like <laughs> ten years out <laughs> of date right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think on a social political level, I think you know you need to recognize each other. I think again that fact of blackness means that you you know you are being um, defined somewhat. Um, through each other is really hard alone and I think as black folks most of us are first a lot of us are first generation some of us be second and third and of course um, and the East Coast much 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 longer but speaking in Toronto many of us are, are you know not too many generations um, settled here so I think we need to socially engineer that privilege that we don't necessarily have through our connection to each other.
0: Can you talk more, um, can you, Helen, can you talk a bit more about socially engineering your privilege? I've never heard someone use, use those terms that way.
3: Neither have I, I just made that <laughs> up. <laughs> but I think, I think that's effectively what we've been doing Matthew. you know, when I think about it, like, we, you know, we go to these networking events, you, you yourself have created um, Eclipse, and, you know, I think Coffee, Maniaca, like, you know, all of these organizations are, um, designed to socially engineer the privilege, the social capital that we don't necessarily come to the table with. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to, uh, to start utilizing, um, those networks and supporting each other, recognizing each other, and then allowing people to be just who they are. So, you know, not, not, Again, going back to having the the right to be who you are and be an individual. I mean, if, if some people don't want to be in a certain group, that's fine. Like that's their that's their prerogative, and there's no judgment there. I think I think as we mature as Black Canadians, we uh, allow must allow for more and more diversity, and um, be okay with that, and to hold all of that together.
0: You know, I appreciate that Helen has brought up inherited privilege because it is a question or it is a area that doesn't get enough appreciation and the the recognition of how inherited privilege whether it's actually through your lineage or through what you appear to represent how that actually flies directly in the face of our ideas of meritocracy there's a 2018 article in uh, in uk's the spectator written by toby young whose father, incidentally, Michael Young, is credited with coining the term meritocracy in a satirical book that he wrote called The Rising of Meritocracy. And in Toby Young's article, he talks about how meritocracy has been used to legitimize privilege. So I, you know, probably a little piece for you to, to take a look at. What's interesting to me is that whiteness is not just the presence of people who would identify as white or who would be identified as white it's also a mindset that doesn't question how race is informing policies practices and processes so you could have an institution that has black people in it and yet still remains white and once you are in a position of questioning the status quo the task of being purpose-minded is so critical so for those of us who stay in institutions what do we do about it helen talks about seeing her her role or seeing at least part of her role as being a translator, recognizing that because of her experiences and worldviews, she may see things that her colleagues don't.
3: I think uh, the role I play now is um, a translation role. I think it's uh, sometimes a very creative role where you're um, finding opportunities, much like you. I mean, Maki, you're amazing at this. Um, naming the thing which has not yet been named uh that needs to come to the table making something explicit uh so where things remain silent obviously they have uh they operate um invisibly and there's a level of power that um needs to become explicit and so I think someone who's an activist can can name those things can see them first of all because you have to perceive it to name it um so I can see the things that need to that need to be named um and I can hold um particular things in in context so while there may be a very sort of high level systemic policy conversation I can as a translator as someone who's been on the ground who's you know worked with refugees who cared for refugees who um who's uh, been a grassroots organizer I I can say okay um so what does this mean for real people and how do we need to adapt this or does this even make sense or who do we need to ask or consult with because um I know that the trajectory of certain programs or research initiatives or events just would not have been the same if um, I, my, if I wasn't there.
0: So because of her, you know, her practice of doing this, she can now insert these unnamed things into high-level policy conversations and then, like we described in Kika's experience earlier, she can change the trajectory of a program from inequitable to equitable. But Helen is really careful to add that it's important not only to be seen in this vein.
3: You know, also seeing yourself as a as, as someone who, you have a suite of skills and experiences. You're not just, you know, the black person on the job or you're not a one trick wonder. So um, when I, I think that it's important to remind people of that too, mm-hmm. that you're not just speaking about, you're not just speaking about it from your experience as a black woman, right? (laughs) That's not, it's not, it's not just that. That's obviously, that's confused with everything. But it's also that you have credentials. You know what you're talking about. You've done, you know, you've done your staff courses. So, you know, you know, you're talking on the same level. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is bringing nuance or bringing a different perspective or, or adding something to the conversation. And I think that's where sometimes um, the leaders, the, the other people we work with sometimes get it wrong, is that they think that you're only adding um, the cultural piece, or the diversity piece, or the black piece. And it's like, nah, like you're actually supporting the strategic purpose of your organization. Mm-hmm. So sometimes organizations, they hire diverse leaders, and they want they, they, they want you to be there, and they really want to leverage your skills and college, but they don't know how to listen to us here. Mm-hmm.
0: It's this very intentionality that Kika points to as critical for Black people who stay rather than leave the corporate world.
2: I want to say that it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that we need people to stay. So now that I'm a business, I'm, I'm doing my business only. I'm still a taxpayer. You know, I, I use public services, I need those services to be equitable. I need, those, I need that if I decide to, I don't know, engage in anything public, that those spaces are not wrought with racism and inequities. You know, um, I need my banking sector, my finance sector to not be, you know, racist and not, and, you know, and to, to sort of create barriers. I need it not to create barriers uh, to my progress, et cetera. So, and that's going to require that some of us are inside. Uh, you know, I I think I think there's a couple things about being inside. I think being inside means being clear about your mission, because if you're inside but not doing action-oriented strategizing to undo like nothing, um, then then you're just inside, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I think I think there's a role for people that are inside. Uh, And and if if all it is, is to make way for somebody else, like if if you don't take up the rest of the mission, if the only thing you take up while you're on the inside is that your existence there can mean that somebody else that wishes to be there, that they can be there too. But hopefully we will take on more than that. We will actually participate in the organization's change work to address how systemic oppression is taking place in the workplace. Um, I know that, just in terms of the inside, people on the inside, I know that people often become critical of people on the inside. You know, oh, you work there, you work for that person, or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and as I said, I think once people are inside and intentional, um, we need them. And I think that it's extremely short-sighted to think that we can afford, as black people, in this context, to not have anybody on the insides of these organizations doing the work, partnering with the outside, partnering with the advocacy groups and the community groups um, to get the work done, to get to make the changes happen. It, it takes all of us.
0: For some people, the idea of climbing the corporate ladder is a no-brainer. They're here to do that. It's clear. But for others, it's more complicated. They're more contemplative. And so the decisioning is not as black and white.
3: In many ways, um, it's a smart decision for people to want to sort of lay low and um, just kind of live their life and uh, not not be in the pressure cooker that is leadership when you're a black person in this country. Um, so I, I completely understand it. I think that many of our institutions are not um, are not grappling with the question of diversity in leadership in a very substantive way. Mm. I think, I think they're trying. I, I'm seeing a huge change and a huge shift. And I mean, there are new, new leaders, emerging leaders, um, that are really, really, um, pushing this agenda forward. But I think that there are still some deeper substantive questions that need to be addressed to make leaders, to make really talented, employees want to make the decision to move up. Mm-hmm. It's a personal decision. Um, the cost of leadership is great. So whether you're Black or not, it, there is, it, you know, people make that decision based on their families and their personal situations. Um, but then I also think that there's the added layer of representation, the burden of representation that Black people carry, the, the politicization of a Black identity um, and the implications of what do you do with that as a Black leader?
0: Going to work in a space that wasn't designed for you to thrive is hard, let alone trying to challenge those spaces in ways that are meant to dismantle the normal ways of doing things. And for me, this is where community is so critical. We need to have folks to lean on. First
1: of all, I would say I've always operated on the basis that the do you network the richer you are? That's been my observation Uh, um, My network You know, covers just A a wide variety of areas And interests Because that just happens to be who I am Mm. But I will tell you that my blackness um, My culture They're they're of singular importance To me And who I am And so that being The case um, It can never really be removed from who I am and how I represent. It's an integral part of Ray Williams, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, the Delta Mangas, the Stanley Julian, Mm -hmm. I could go on and on and on, right? And those are people from, like yourself, from Bay Street. But then I have, like, buddies like Jude Kelly, you know, who's in communications, Tommy Young, you know, um, you know, Ken Montague, I mean, like, you know, my black network is essential It is absolutely essential to me representing. It It is essential to my acknowledgement of who I am, where I come from,
0: my culture. Hey, nonsense. So we move into our next segment. Hey, nonsense. So this segment is where we talk about things that are happening around us that just don't make sense. And if we were to bring them home to our aunties and our uncles, they would just hold their hands, oh no, wash their hands of it and say, this is nonsense. So for our first A Nonsense segment, I turn to Kika Ojo-Thompson. What do you think is happening around you that you would count as nonsense?
2: Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, awesome, thank you. So. Um, sheer nonsense is saying that you want to do quote unquote diversity and inclusion work, um, and not wanting to talk about anti black racism. Mm. (laughs) Nonsense. (laughs) Nonsense. (laughs) You know, it's, (laughs) it's, um, so first of all, when, when organizations say that they're doing diversity and inclusion work, what they often mean is that they wanna do work to achieve equitable outcomes. And that they are interested in the various frameworks to get to equity that ought to be applied. So what have become popular and sort of cozy um, and soft are this this pairing of these words diversity and inclusion. Most people don't know what they mean, they don't know their limitations as frameworks, but they sound okay. Mm-hmm. and they become sort of like indicators of the work as opposed to being literal in their definition. Um, so so that's also foolishness, right? <laughs> it's using language that we don't actually intend. What people are actually problematizing in workplaces are the overrepresentations and underrepresentations. Mm-hmm. And it could be even in, you know, the data around who's complaining, who's experiencing issues, who's being problematized, who's being let go. Like there's all that's all data, and you know, oftentimes people are responding to that data, or who, who was complaining, you know, um, and and so and so they're they're wanting to respond to those data to those data um, by you know sort of instituting these, this program, this office, and then so, but then they limit themselves around. what what frameworks they're prepared to use. So you're trying to get to equity and you apply diversity and inclusion. But you won't go all the way to anti-Black racism, but you've got this like bag load of issues to do with Black people. (laughs) So um, foolishness, Mm. right? Um, And and it goes back to uh, what we were saying sort of earlier in the podcast around around, um, this sort of lack of acknowledgement, awareness, naming of how colonialism and, and sort of the vestiges of slavery are operating here in Canada. And so, so, so one of the roots of the unwillingness to say Black and anti-Black racism in particular is um, around the problematic belief that, you know, Black people are where they are because of what they are doing or not doing, you know. And if they would stop doing those things or do more of the other things, then they would not be in the position that they're in, mm-hmm. which screams a lack of analysis and understanding of how colonialism and slave um, and and systemic racism are
1: operating. Right? <laughs> no. Sé.
0: to our friend Ray Williams to answer the question of who need, who or what needs to be recognized right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know if any institutions in particular out there, but someone closer to home that I, I've watched over the last few years and I'm just really impressed by her, and that was the, um, the previous MP, Selena. Um, César Chavez Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I guess Whitby she has impressed me with her desire to speak truth to power she's impressed me with how forthright she is, she's impressed me with the fact that um, if she feels she's made a mistake she has no uh, objection to publicly apologizing and um, there is a an aspect of freshness about who she is, how she is, how she represents, that makes me feel very, very good about, you know, how our black women are. So, yeah, she, she's someone that I find uh, extremely refreshing, uh, that I find uh, very powerful, bright, capable, you know, mother, wife, you know, she she represents a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I would say that she is someone that I find inspiring.
0: Yes, I think I definitely agree with you. She, she showed us a different way of being a politician. She redefined, right. she redefined that role. And, uh, thank you for recognizing sure. her. And in our last segment, Ray was recognizing Selena Cesar Chavannes. I just wanted to take a moment to share a couple of amazing points about Selena She was a very successful entrepreneur, having even received Business Entrepreneur of the Year Award from the Toronto Region Board of Trade in 2012. All this before she took the leap into politics and served as a Member of Parliament from 2015 to 2019. She was a very vocal politician, a very bold politician, she continued to press for issues of racial equality and gender advocacy in everything that she did. And her work caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey, who featured her in O Magazine. We recognize you, Selena Cesar Chavannes. We see you and we thank you. So much of the public conversation about Black presence in corporate institutions is about us leaving. Here on Presence by O season one, we are having the conversation about what it takes for us to stay. We've examined some ideas of what it means to stay and stay Black on Bay Street and the impact of our presence, especially the impact of our presence when it is paired with purpose. I am so grateful to Ray, Kika, and Helen for spending their time with me, and I'm grateful to you for listening. If you're like me, you listen to podcasts while you're driving, while you're cleaning, while you're doing your errands. So I hope we've been good company to you. This show is about taking space and making space. I look forward to journeying with you as we explore this topic further. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and tell a friend. Connect with me on Twitter or IG at Presence by Naki o and share any topics or questions you'd like us to explore. This is Presence by Naki O. Take space, make space. Peace.